If you have your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. So authoritative to just tell you where to go. But I'm asking you to join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is an incredible passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul continues now in his second letter to a group of believers in Corinth who are spiritually struggling. I think perhaps all of us can identify with a spiritual struggle. They're disunified at times, dominated by pride. They're argumentative. They are chasing down ministry for the sake of being noticed, and the apostle is helping them reground themselves. And here, by the time we arrive at chapter 5 and verse 14, he delivers to them what I believe to be a foundational cornerstone of successful spiritual living, and that cannot be lightly overlooked. And I'll read just this verse. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14 says this, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. That is a big Bible word, constraineth us. But the practical ramifications of scripturally understanding what is being communicated in that verse goes into every facet of our existence. I have learned that motivation in life comes in different forms and fashions through different seasons of life. When I was a child, if I was given a chore, I was motivated by the presence of my parents and perhaps disciplinary action if I did not follow through on the chore. It worked. Most of the time, I did what I was told to do. I was motivated. As I aged a little bit, I cared more about what people thought. I didn't want my hair slicked over by my mom's licked fingers. How many of you have had that happen? Licked fingers, slicked hair. Now I just, I wish I had hair to slick, but that goes too. I cared about how I looked because I was concerned about what other people thought of me. Then, almost 25 years ago, incredibly, I met my wife, who was then my girlfriend, and I had a different motivation. Then, in June of 98, we got married, and I realized now is certainly the time to grow up. Now I have responsibility and newfound motivation. Then in June of 2002, my daughter came into the world and I realized there's even more pressure and I have newfound motivation. In life, we are motivated in different seasons by various things. Largely all of them ebb. And I know this, that if we are constantly waiting on some external factor to motivate us, spiritually speaking, we are going to live a miserable existence. We have got to settle on some primary scriptural motivations if we're ever going to accomplish in our lives, spiritually speaking, what the Lord wants. The corporate world gets this. If you have a group of people that lack motivation, output flags, morale drops. The truth is the same exists spiritually speaking. We're too motivated by what people think. We're too motivated by a pat on the back. We're too motivated by mere duty and obligation. And what I sense can happen over time is we have a fatigued group of believers trying to accomplish the cause of Jesus Christ, and it is an increasingly failing effort. 
What is it that motivates you? If we were to say that somebody we knew had an ulterior motive, we would say of them they have a secret agenda to do what they're doing. Biblical people, believers like us, should be able to answer from the scriptures why we do what we do. What gets us up and gets us here on a Sunday? What gets us up tomorrow morning pursuing holiness, chasing down a life of morality and virtue? What motivates us to do what we should do? Those are primary motivations, and I want to equip you in the coming weeks to be able to scripturally answer those things. Maybe if we really grasped our failure, it would help us. Statistics can do that. They can be boring, I know, But I think these are powerful. Nearly 3.14 billion people in the world today fall into the category of the unreached who have never heard the name of Jesus. Can you imagine 3.14 billion people have never even heard the name of Jesus? 764 million of those people are considered unevangelized with a very small chance of ever hearing the gospel. I love what one wrote. He said, I believe that in each generation, God has called enough men and women to evangelize all the yet unreached tribes of the earth. It is not God who does not call. It is man who will not respond. The fact is, 70,000 people every single day die in the unreached world. And the odds are great that the vast, vast majority of them enter into eternity without ever hearing the name of Jesus Christ or even having an opportunity to confront the gospel. That is staggering. And when we really step back and assess that the Lord Jesus Christ's last mandate to the church was to go and reach every nation on the earth, we will now confront how woefully we have fallen short, how unmotivated we are, how much we have relied on external motivating factors to do the work, and it's not enough. I think also when we grasp from Scripture and then see real-world statistics, it puts into perspective a whole lot of the pettiness that derails our days and our weeks and far too many churches. And here's what I know. God wants us to have the right motivation. Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus, and he wrote this to them. He said, not with eye service as men pleasers, who cares about what people see and who cares about what people think, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. The heart is God's focal point. Now, we might think God really wants us to be super busy, And that we can make God smile really big if we do a whole lot for God. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, who is speaking as the mouthpiece for God. God would speak to an Old Testament prophet. The Old Testament prophet would speak to the nation of Israel. And in Isaiah chapter 1, God, speaking through Isaiah to the children of Israel, gives to them a scathing rebuke. And I want you to listen in on it. And the words will be here so that you can follow along. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? Now hear the tone in God's speech. I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear me, who hath required this at your hand 
to tread my courts. Now, here's what the children of Israel would say. You did. You gave us the law, and you mandated the sacrificial system. And so we're doing what you asked us to do. And we're doing a lot of what you asked us to do. And we're faithfully doing a lot of what you've asked us to do. And God responds to them in the 13th verse and says, Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity. Even the solemn meeting, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. That's the Old Testament way of saying, I'm sick and tired of your solemn meetings. Tired of you assembling together for the sake of assembling together. He goes on and says, and when ye spread forth your hands in prayer, when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. In effect, God delivers to them a scathing rebuke that is painful to confront. You aren't doing anything from the heart. Your ministry is adding up to nothing. All you are doing is busy work. All you are doing is fulfilling mere obligation. I love when the Apostle Paul talks or deals with the church at Ephesus. I like it. I like that in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ is assessing local church behavior. And the church at Ephesus, in my mind, is a lot like us. It was planted. The Apostle Paul was there. They even rented a school for a period of time. It was a church full of really challenging people, so challenging that the apostle says, take a little wine for thy stomach's sake because I know those people are absolutely killing you, Timothy. See, it's a lot like our church. Anxiety-laden pastor because of problem people. So many similarities. I hate when you don't laugh because then people in the lobby are gonna say stuff to me afterwards. That's a joke. You're all wonderful. I'm glad to be here. It's an easy church to pastor and a thrill to come every time. See, you laugh more at that. When I lie, you laugh more than when I speak the truth. You are not spiritual people. Timothy was pastoring this church, and this was a church of try-hard people, founded by Paul, pastored by Timothy, really getting after it in the city of Ephesus. And when the Lord Jesus Christ, in the book of Revelation, assesses the church at Ephesus directly, here is what he says. Now I'm going to read from Revelation 2 verse 1, and this is an introduction of Jesus. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's a really Bible way to say this is the Lord assessing the church. And here's what he says. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, And how thou canst not bear them which are evil, all good things. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. This is a ringing endorsement of the church at Ephesus. I see how hard you're working. I see how diligently you study. 
I see how you are protecting the doctrine and keeping out the false teachers. I see how you have endured persecution. And we think, what a ringing endorsement, until we arrive at the fourth verse, and the Lord says this, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because you have left your first love. I see all of your service. I see all of your worship. I see all of your sacrifice. And I judge that your motives are amiss. I have something against you because all it is is work. It's obligation. It's busyness. You have begun to satiate the hole that exists in your conscience, not with my love, but rather with your efforts. And we would look at religions that mandate work for salvation and we would say that is damning theology. But the fact is all of us are prone to slip into that. Just trying to make God happy with everything that we do. And we're so busy and yet we're so empty. And we find no ministry fulfilling or purposeful. And I'm asking, I'm striving, I'm driving to help you understand biblically what should be your primary motivation. And if you find yourself lacking motivation, if you find yourself struggling with wrong motivation, I'd say to you there's a good chance that you've lost your perspective on the love of Jesus Christ. say, well, that's so simple. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14. It is the foundational cornerstone The love of Christ constrains us. What motivates a lost man, a child of the devil, that's strong language, that's Bible language, what what motivates somebody who is not a follower of Jesus Christ is vastly different than what should motivate a believer. And it's all wrapped up in one word, and that is the word love. In fact, as the children of Israel could have argued back with Isaiah, the mouthpiece of God, and said, it was God who mandated the sacrifice system, he could have responded back and said, actually, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, when the law was being given, here is what God asked for. Here's what Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Love is what Jesus asked for. I'm sorry, love is what God asked for. In the New Testament, Jesus is being cornered And they're asking him, you tell us what is the greatest commandment? What's the primary commandment? And Jesus responds in Mark 12 and says, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, with all thy strength. That's the first commandment. Jesus references Deuteronomy 6.5. And then he says this, and the second is like namely this, love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. So I can say to you with a scriptural foundation, when it comes to spiritual motivation, there is nothing more fundamental than love. That's what Paul told the church at Ephesus, be rooted and grounded in love. That's what he told struggling believers in Corinth, constrained by the love of Christ. That is motivation enough. Constrained, that's a big word, isn't it? You can amplify it, you can paint a a visual verbal image by just expounding on it a little. Authors down through the years have taken that word constrained and they've tried to unpack it a little for us to understand. They would use words like this. It it urges us. It impels us. It controls us. It compels us because of our conclusion. It's the very spring of our actions. 
It leaves us no choice. It harasses us. It presses in on us from all sides. I hate harassing behavior, don't you? Harassment. I don't like to be harassed, goaded to action. I like at times to sit still. How many of you have ever had small children in your home? They don't even have to be your own. Small children in your home. In fact, sometimes those ones that aren't your own drive you more crazy than your own. I mean, I say that because I've been around your kids. I mean, I'm just... And there can be occasion where I have my kid in the room and I will be sitting and I will be doing very spiritual things like watching football, spiritually developing my walk with the Lord, deepening my theological understanding. And I will want to sit still and I will want to watch football. And my son would come into the room and he would say something along the lines of, Dad, do you want to go outside? And I would say, no, I don't want to go outside. And he would say something like, Dad do you want to play? And I would say, no, I don't want to play. And then he would put together that I was watching football and he would think to himself, if I go get a football while he's watching football and bring the football into the room, he will want to play football with me. And so he'd get a football, he'd bring it into the room and he'd have like a jersey on at this point. I'm like, man, you're trying so hard to get my attention and my love, child. What is this all about? Okay, done being funny. Rest of the time, straight theology. That's all. That's it. I can't even be sarcastic on my own stage anymore. Comes in the room, Dad, you want to throw the football? And then I might do things like take the football and throw it as far as I could into another room to buy about 30 to 40 seconds of peace, and he come back in. Until finally, you sense that you are so harassed by this constant presence that you are motivated out of a sedentary state into activity because you are pressed, you are enveloped, you are goaded, you are impelled, you are compelled to get out of that seat and to do something. And the Apostle Paul is using that language for us. He is saying, I am assessing what I'm seeing on the spiritual scene. I see busy people, but I also see a world that is damned by their sin and lost, and we are not making an impact. And he is saying, here is the only thing that's going to be enough. Who cares if anybody pats you on the back? Doesn't matter if they know your name. Who cares if they're keeping score? Doesn't matter what the building looks like or what your preferences are. Are you motivated by the love of Christ? Because a true awareness of the love of Jesus Christ will harass you out of a sedentary state and compel you to activity, and that never goes away unless you silence your awareness of the love of Christ for you. And what I would say is we have a generation of impotent Christians and apathetic ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ who have become far too sedentary because they are scripturally ignorant. And they have sedated themselves by busy activity, and inoculated themselves, see, I worked vaccine into a sermon, against the love of Jesus Christ as a motivating factor. And that's you, and that's me. What does the love of Jesus Christ constrain us to do? Notice what he says in the second part of the 14th verse. Constrained by the love of Christ, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. All we're doing is unpacking the scripture. I am constrained, I am, I am harassed, I am compelled to sacrifice because 
I have settled in my mind that God so loved the world enough to send his only begotten son, Jesus, that I might have salvation. An old preacher from the 1800s, and I know you love to read them. You've probably already read this. Quoted on this passage and just described the love of Jesus Christ. Here's what he wrote. He said, herein is love indeed, that the infinitely pure should suffer for the sinful, the just for the unjust. To bring us to God. Love did never climb to so sublime a height as when it brought Jesus to the bloody tree to bear the dread sentence. Think of this love, beloved, till you feel its constraining influence. It was love eternal. For the long before the earth was fashioned, the eternal word had set his eye upon his people and their names were engraved on his heart. It was love unselfish, for he had nothing to gain from his redeemed. It was love most free and spontaneous, most persevering, infinite, immeasurable, inconceivable, and it constrains us. Why do you strive to do right? Why are you so fatigued in the cause of Jesus Christ? I would say it is because you have dumbed yourself down, scripturally speaking, and have lost your awareness of the love of Jesus Christ. And if we take our eyes off of that, everything else is onerous and overwhelming. He carries on in verse 15 and he says this, He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth, get this phrase, live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. I am constrained. I am harassed to sacrifice living for myself because I have settled that Jesus loved me enough to die for me. How relevant is it that the death of Jesus Christ frees us from a need to live for ourselves? That is incredibly relevant. Because I am now aware that I have been bought with a price and I have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, not by gold, not by silver, not by any corruptible thing, but by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I'm free now to sacrifice. No more selfishness. No more conceit. No more self-aggrandizing or self-commending. Not achievement. It's not enough. Not wealth. Only the love of Christ can compel me to sacrifice, but not only to sacrifice. Notice what he says in verse 16. He uses the word wherefore. Wherefore is the Apostle Paul's way of, here's what you're going to do based on what we just established. And he just established Jesus Christ died. Now based on that, here's what he says. Henceforth, moving forward, No, we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Paul's getting real brass tacks and he's saying this. After salvation, the way that I viewed the rest of humanity changed radically. I no longer recognize anybody according to the flesh. I no longer evaluate anybody based on external standards. Realize that the Apostle Paul was painfully, was terribly prejudiced. Racially motivated. He was of the Sanhedrin. He was a persecutor of Christians. And he said, when I came to Jesus Christ, all of that went away. And I now see people, as one author said, with Jesus' vision. You say, well, that's corny. Maybe, but I understand what he's communicating. 
Because Jesus' vision, as the Apostle Paul communicated it, allows us to see no longer Greek or Jew. That's what he wrote in the book of Colossians. We no longer see circumcision. That's the person who abides by the law, nor uncircumcision. Not the barbarian or the Scythian, not the bond nor the free. Christ. That's what I see. Christ is all and in all. When you come to Christ, you are now a new creature. All things are become new, including the way you see the world and who you are willing to serve. Racism, classism, status, it all goes away. In Christ, we are constrained to serve. From now on, since the death of Christ, I will see people as only in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will see people as only in need of being reached. In verse 17, he establishes an incredible reality. Old things pass away. All things are become new. People can be reached and become something we never imagined they would become. Something brand new. When I see pictures, and they're grievous to look at, they're troubling to our hearts as we look at the situation in Afghanistan, and we see soldiers, Taliban soldiers, armed, and we are aware that Women and Christians are being persecuted and killed. We get despondent when we see that. But I say to you, are you aware that Saul of Tarsus was one of those soldiers who drug Christians out of their homes, beat them to death in the street? That Saul of Tarsus stood by as Stephen was publicly executed and murdered by stoning and he held people's coats and gave full consent to that martyrdom? Are you aware that as he was on the road before his conversion, he had letters in his hand from the Sanhedrin empowering him to go and to kill Christians and then his life intersected with the truth of Jesus Christ and he is gloriously saved and becomes the greatest church planting missionary ambassador for Christ, gospel distributor that we really know anything about. What I am saying to you is, if we would stop seeing people with external values and begin to be constrained by the love of Christ to see them for what they could be in Christ, it changes everything about us, but we're not motivated like that. We're not harassed by the love of Christ enough We limit who we can reach. We limit who we can go to. And I say to you, it is a fact that God can reach the most hopeless, the darkest, the lowliest, the worst, and the furthest away from the truth. We write people off too quickly. We might not be able to do anything, but God can. Paul had gospel disregard. No more evaluation superficially of what I see. I am compelled to to serve other people. And then just simply note what he writes in verse 18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now that is an exceptional treatise on the gospel that we will leave packed up. Needless to say, he has just delivered doctrinal truth about salvation, and he sums it up and says, now then, 
We are here for one reason. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. I am harassed to share the truth of Jesus Christ because of the love of Jesus Christ for me. And let me be very careful to say the Apostle Paul is not saying I am compelled to action because of how much I love Jesus. Because not one of us loves Jesus enough to sacrifice and to serve and to share as is expected. Anything that relies on any human motivation or anything that is fountained in us will fall woefully short. He says, I am motivated, I am harassed, I am compelled to action because of his love for me that's never changing and it is always overwhelming. I must share the truth of who Jesus is with the world. That's why I'm here. If, if that's not what I'm about, why am I here? Why would I be left here? We beseech, we plead with men. We don't command them to be saved. We can't do it. We don't condemn them. We don't have that authority. We plead them to respond to a God of love. That's our message. Jesus Christ can end the enmity between hopeless, wicked, sinful people and a holy God. Jesus Christ can end that. And I am his ambassador. I don't even set my own agenda I don't live by the dictates of my own will or my passion. I do what I do because this is my job. I don't mean pastor. I don't mean preach. I mean just like you. I'm a believer who is a witness to what Jesus Christ has said in his word and the world needs to hear that. Why would you ever share the truth about Jesus Christ? Well, because people expect it. Well, because the world is dark. All of those things may be true, but the fact is, if we are not motivated by love, everything falls short of what it could and should be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great chapter on love, the Apostle Paul is, is speaking to a group of busy people, the believers at Corinth. They're doing a lot of stuff, just like the church at Ephesus. And yet he is communicating to them, you are really trying hard to do something. You desperately want to matter. You want your life to matter and you want your ministry to matter. And I say to you, it's not if it's not motivated by love. He tells them, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, that is love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, if I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. He is saying, I get it, you're busy. I understand you're ministering. I see that you're trying to feed the poor. I grasp that you are really doing a lot out of duty and obligation. You're undertaking a lot of busy work. But I say to you, everybody who's trying to be something and who wants their life to matter, if you are doing everything that you're doing without love, you accomplish nothing. If you are doing all of this without love, you are nothing. In verse 2, that's harsh, but it's fact. And you profit nothing. Life without love adds up to zero every time. We understand that we can be fatigued in ministry, lose sight, grow tired, we're exhausted. We put our eyes on difficult people, we put our eyes on financial or health situations, we, we lose heart because somebody may say something amiss or there's some injustice or somebody speaks against us or we're mistreated or we're overlooked or we're forgotten or we're ignored, whatever it may be. And when that happens to us, we lose motivation. 
We start to ask questions like, why would I even do that? Why should I even try? And if we rely on other people and we rely on some internal emotion to be enough to push us to activity, it will never happen. But the love of Jesus Christ harasses us out of a sedentary state and coerces us to sacrifice, not living for ourselves, to serve regardless of who we come in contact with and to share because we realize that's why we're here. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.